Beloved congregation of the Lord, will you turn with me again to Isaiah 9, verses 6 and 7. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there shall be no end, upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. I will confess that when I began this series in early December, I did not expect to still be addressing these texts in March, but in addition to a number of series that we've been tackling along the way, what I found is that there are amazing riches within these words, speaking not only of the coming of our blessed Messiah into the world at his first advent, of his glorious offices and the salvation which he brings, but also the advance of his glorious kingdom of salvation across History and across this world, bringing glad tidings of peace and godly dominion wherever it goes. Indeed, we've seen that these themes are traced out throughout the whole Bible. We've principally been focusing on texts in Isaiah, but not limiting ourselves to it in order to understand the themes that are contained here. And last time, we spoke of those last words, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. We saw that the zeal of the Lord of hosts was his righteous jealousy for the good of his people and the honor of his name, his people whom he has bound himself to in his covenant promise, even giving them his son, the Messiah, in order that they would be saved and redeemed. Indeed, everything that is said about the Messiah and his kingdom in verses 6 and 7 has the stamp upon it, not from our own will, our ingenuity, or the fervency of our prayers, or the purity of our faith. No, all these things are performed because of the zeal of the Lord of hosts. He will bring it all about, both the accomplishment of our salvation in Christ and the application of that salvation through the Holy Spirit and the expansive reach of that salvation unto the furthest reaches of the world. And what a comfort that is. We look at that text and hear about how the kingdom of our Christ will be ordered with judgment and with justice, how its increase will be without end. And we look around at our dark world and the, the terrible signs we see of apostasy and sin and evil and tyranny and spiritual darkness. And we ask ourselves, have these things been forgotten? Well, no, dear one. Don't ever think it for a moment. The Lord's jealous zeal for his people and for the honor of his Christ will never subside. We saw that, didn't we, 
not only that he will revive his church and people, giving them great spiritual life and great victories such that these things are accomplished in history before his coming, but as well that it should be reflected also in our own zeal. When we hear of the Lord's zeal to accomplish these things, surely it ought to create that yearning in our own hearts for a deeper taste of the Lord's work in our own lives, in our own family, in our church, in our nation, in our generation. We yearn with a holy yearning, with a holy zeal for these things to be brought about. I know that in working on this series, I've certainly been praying more for revival, been praying more for these things to be brought about. And I hope that's been the case for you. I hope that in hearing about the glorious promises of the scripture, it has caused you to lay hold of those promises and set them before the Lord, asking, Lord, is it not so? Is it not so that the knowledge of God will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea? Is it not so that in our day as well, you are a God who is pleased to redeem not only ones and twos, but in great numbers. Oh, would that it would be seen by us. Revival. Indeed, we've heard much of revival in recent weeks. I trust if you've been following the news, much discussion about it in a Methodist university where tens of thousands of people came and and worshipped for days and weeks in unending worship services. And so there's been much discussion. What is revival? Is this revival? Is this not revival? And so forth. And good discussion to be had, but we must think about these things biblically, surely. What is revival? I didn't want to leave this series without at least tackling some of those questions. And I chose for this conclusion of this series, for the time being at any rate, to think about revival. That is inseparable from the promises we've seen, and it's inseparable from the yearning of the Lord's people. And when we look at this book of Acts, we see many cases of revival. Indeed, you could say it's a book of a series of revivals where the Lord worked in those early days after the Lord Jesus ascended to the right hand of the majesty on high. There was that revival in Jerusalem where on Pentecost the Holy Spirit descended upon the small gathering there and Peter began to preach and 3,000 converted in one day. Wouldn't that be amazing if there was such a commotion at this church building people came out to see and through a single sermon, 3,000 wanting to join the church. Oh, you see it again. There's Philip. He goes to Samaria. And again, the Holy Spirit descends and, and great multitudes joining the church. Yes, you see attacks from the devil. Yes, you see assaults upon the new gospel church. And yet, what you do see as well is the faithfulness of the Lord converting and sanctifying the new covenant people 
in the wonderful gospel light of those early days. And I think that as you see the Lord working here in Ephesus, it was a bit of an extensive scripture reading, but I trust that it was most edifying for you to reflect upon how the Lord Jesus worked also through his church in that city of Ephesus. Sort of encapsulated in the latter part of chapter 18 and the early part of chapter 19, the end of Paul's second missionary journey and the beginning of his third, where in that city of Ephesus there in Asia Minor, a series of amazing occurrences worked out for the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ and the good of his church. Indeed, if such things would happen today, we'd have to say it was revival. And so it's these things, the history included in the scripture portions which we've read, that I want to use in order to draw various lessons about revival, how the zeal of the Lord of hosts will bring about the gospel kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ, not only in the early days of the church, but all the way unto the second coming of Christ, and we pray also in our own day. And so focusing on really this section of the scriptures under the theme of revival, I want to draw three things to your attention from it. First, we will see how it is known, how revival is known. True revival, distinguished, you could say, from spurious or counterfeit revival. In the second place, I want to speak to you about the conflicts that can result from revival. Conflict. In the third place, I want to speak about the relationship of revival to reformation. Revival and its relation to reformation. Well, what an amazing thing it would have been to be in those days. Paul today recognized as an amazing theologian, as the sort of person that Christians would throng in great numbers to see. But in his own day, he was a humble missionary. Earlier on, though we didn't read it, in chapter 18, it speaks of him as a humble tent maker. Think of that, the Apostle Paul, this brilliant man who the Lord Jesus separated from the school of Gamaliel, of the Pharisees, a self-righteous, wicked Pharisee, torturing and tormenting the church of God. But now he is an apostle unto the Gentiles and a missionary, bringing the gospel unto those people that dwelt in the spiritual darkness of paganism. He's going about on these different missionary journeys, supporting himself through this humble means and Here on his third missionary journey, he's teaching for a space of about two years, as we see there in verses, um, um, yeah, as we see there in verses 10 to 12. And we'll speak more about that. But I want to speak to you about the revival in the first place as it happened after him teaching there for the space of two years. And I want to draw out some lessons about that from the first, in the first instance about how true revival can be known. And I want to pick up reading about something that happened after this two-year period of teaching 
there in uh, Ephesus and begin reading at verse 13. Then certain of the vagabond Jews, exorcists, took upon them to call over them, which had evil spirits, the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, We adjure you by Jesus, whom Paul preacheth. And there were seven sons of one Sevilla, a Jew and chief of the priests, which did so. And the evil spirit answered and said, Jesus I know, and Paul I know, but who are ye? And the man in whom the evil spirit was leapt on them and overcame them and prevailed against them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. And there was known to all the Jews and Greeks also dwelling in Ephesus, and fear fell on them all. The name of the Lord Jesus was magnified. I want to stop there because that was the occurrence which seems to have sparked the revival, which we will consider in more detail in a moment. But consider that. The other revivals are mentioned in Jerusalem and um, Samaria, and earlier on in the book of Acts began through a gospel sermon and through what you might say was a very orderly way. Someone comes and preaches the gospel and people are converted. Here we have a more messy situation. What you have is um, in the context where Paul has been teaching in the space of two years there in that city of over 250,000 people, a number of these people from the Jewish religion, probably from the more liberal and unorthodox Jewish diaspora, well, they begin to try to use aspects of Paul's message for their own purpose. They are exorcists. They try to do different things in order to exercise power over demons that are possessing people. And so this group of people, some of whom apparently were actually sons of a high priest, they decide, well, this will be a, a useful thing. We will say to the um, we will say to the evil spirits, we adjure you or we command you in the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches. So not exactly an ideal situation from the standpoint of ourselves. These are people who are trying to do something um, without any kind of understanding. They're basically using the name of Jesus as a throwaway word just in order to have a bit of power and influence. They don't actually believe or believe in or love the Lord Jesus. And the result is, seems to be something of a disaster. The evil spirit answers them and says, Jesus I know and Paul I know, but who are ye? You know, there's a famous sermon uh, preached on that text under the title, Are You Known in Hell? Are you known in hell? You see, Jesus was certainly known in hell. In those days in which uh, the gospel was going forth, after the Lord Jesus rose from the dead, the devils and the demons certainly knew about the Lord Jesus. They saw how his gospel gave liberty to those that they formerly had in darkness, saving sinners from the worst and most defiling of sins, saving nations that they thought they had completely in their grip. 
And we see that the demons also knew of Paul. They knew of this one that formerly was one of the servants of the evil one, using even the Old Testament scriptures in order to destroy the church and in order to oppose the gospel. But now they knew that he was an instrument of the Lord Jesus and that he was one who spoke the truth with power through the anointing of the Holy Spirit as a gospel minister. He spoke and there was great effects. Great things were done through the ministry of Paul. But they say, I know Jesus, I know, and Paul, I know, but who are ye? It's a great thing to be known and feared by the devil, to be at work in the work of the kingdom, striving against sin, sharing the gospel, working for the glory of Jesus Christ. Do you imagine that hell knows about you? Do you imagine the devil knows about this church? Would that it were so. Would that the devil feared the work that was going on here. But the devil feared nothing of these people who were running without being sent, who had no power, no anointing, no faith. Jesus I know and Paul I know, but who are ye? And so this man possessed of the devil, he leaps up and he overpowers them and he strips them and they have to run away naked and wounded. You might say it's a public relations disaster. It's an embarrassment, but what God, what the devil meant for evil, God worked out for good because, as you see in verse 17, and this was known to all the Jews and Greeks who dwelt also in Ephesus, and fear fell on them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified. You see, through that event, through that phrase, the devil spoke through that man, people became aware of the fact that there was this peculiar power that the Lord Jesus and Paul had over the demonic realm, something that these counterfeits could not hope to substitute. And however it worked, after two years of, the, of Paul seeking to preach and seeking to teach, it was this occurrence and the spread of the news that caused a fear to fall upon many in that city of Ephesus. And so though a messy beginning and the sort of thing that could not be planned, it, it began. There is the beginning of the mark of revival, which is there in verse 17. The Lord Jesus was magnified. Isn't that what you yearn for, Christian? You don't care about a name for yourself. You don't care about a name for your church or your denomination. Let these things fade away. What you yearn for is that the Lord Jesus would be magnified. You want the people would be made would be making much of him, our wonderful counselor, our mighty God, our everlasting Father, our Prince of Peace, this King of all kings, this Lord of all lords, the mighty Lamb of God, who though slain before the foundation of the world has received all authority and power and dominion from the hand of his Father. And oh, that the Lord Jesus would be magnified, 
even in our city here in London, even in our community, doesn't it, it cause your heart to burn with zeal, with jealousy? There are actually people who do not love the Lord Jesus Christ. He who is supremely worthy of love, doesn't it even drive you crazy sometimes? How is it that people could live for anyone or anything other than the Lord Jesus Christ? Missions exist, you see. Evangelism exists because worship is absent. There are people for whom the Holy Sabbath is just another day off or a day to work. There are those for whom the name of the Lord Jesus is only a curse. There are those who are so steeped in entertainment or pastimes or money or sex or whatever it is that they have no thought nor care for the Lord Jesus Christ. And yes, a tragedy for them, a tragedy for their surely damned souls apart from the Lord Jesus. But also this, that the Lord Jesus would be so magnified if they would turn unto him, if they would exalt the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, if they would worship him, well, that that would be revival. You see, revival is not something separate or apart from the ordinary ministry of the word and of the Holy Spirit. But rather, it is those things as they are accelerated, as they are expanded, not only in ones and twos, but in great numbers, people coming to the Lord Jesus Christ in faith and magnifying his holy name. People for whom the worship of God and the prayer unto our God and the service of our God is not a drudgery, not just a routine, but it's something they yearn for, something they're excited for. They want the Lord Jesus Christ. They want to glorify him. They know that they've been bought with a price. They know that their lives are worthless without him. And so they yearn that he would be magnified. Oh, is that not what we want? Is that not what we want, particularly when we see it is not in ourselves? Are you Christian coming into a place of coldness? the things of Christ which once, which, once burn, which once burns into your heart and once caused you to serve him and to love him and to pray to him, are these things growing stale or is the sight of the Lord Jesus growing dim? Oh, you should pray that the Lord Jesus would be magnified in your own heart. The Lord Jesus, you see, is worthy to be magnified. He must increase and we must decrease. Our lives are nothing. He is our everything. So we see the first thing about this revival. The Lord Jesus was magnified. Here's another way revival can be known. There's the confession of sin. Many that believed came and confessed. They came and confessed the gospel which Paul had been planting so diligently throughout those two years it bore this fruit a great number of people came and their faith in the Lord Jesus was known and manifested in this they began to confess their sins Indeed, that's been the sort of thing that is so I'm excited about the recent talks of revival young people 
getting up and saying, I am a sinner, I have sinned in this way, I've sinned in that way. Yes, wherever we hear that, people confessing their sins, no longer holding them close to their chest, not not worrying about their perception that other people will think about them, but openly saying, I was doing this heinous sin and no one else knew. I was living in bitterness and anger. I was living in lust or unfaithfulness. I was doing this wicked sin, that wicked sin. And I confess it all. I am a hell-deserving sinner. I am not someone who deserves the least of the Lord's blessings. I am a wicked, vile, heinous breaker of the Lord's laws. This is what we yearn for, congregation. A true revival ought to be characterized by this, the solemnity that comes from knowing we are in the presence of a most holy God. A God who is a consuming fire, a God who hates all sin, a God who is opposed to all sin, a God who cannot even look upon sin. And this God who has redeemed us in the Lord Jesus Christ would have us not to live on in sin, not to cover over our sin, but to gladly confess those sins. Yes, in the first place, to the Lord. Confessing all of your sins, going before him, naming them one by one. Here are my sins, Lord. I know them and you know them. Let me speak them all before you. Opening up your heart and pouring out all of your sins. Confessing them and casting them at his feet. Saying, I can do nothing with these sins other than have them drag me down to hell. But you, O Lord Jesus Christ, you can take these sins as far as from east as from west. You can deal with them through your cross and through your shed blood. And you, O blessed Father, you will receive me not because I am righteous, but because you receive sinners. And you gladly forgive them out of your abundant heart of mercy. For that is rightly known, should it not also lead to us confessing our sins also to others? You know, sometimes if there are things going on in a church or in a family, sometimes it's not found out until it is uncovered. How much better it is, congregation, when out of the abundance of the knowledge of the gospel... We simply confess anything that, that may have been wrong, anything that may have been a mess, not caring about anything else other than the honor of Christ. There is that mark of revival. But not only the confession, but also the, the corresponding deeds of repentance. And many that believe came and confessed and showed their deeds Many also of them which use curious arts brought their books together and burned them before all men, and they counted the price of them and found it 50,000 pieces of silver. So mightily grew the word of God and prevailed. So that not only they confessed their sins, but they showed genuine repentance through their deeds. 
And in particular, what did they do? Well, all of these people who were formerly idolaters, formerly involved in the occult arts of witchcraft and magic and sorcery, though they had spent their lives dabbling in these wicked abominations, and though it was many thousands of pieces of silver that all these books were worth, yet what you had was a great big bonfire. All of these heretical works, all of these things which the Lord hated, they all took it into one place and burned it and incinerated it. You know, in our own day, there's multiculturalism and there's there's pluralism and there's, well, there's freedom of expression and there's, well, everything has its role and everything has its place. But with the scriptures, you see, if something is wicked, if something is vile, if something is against the law of God, then it must go. What a holy and a beautiful thing when people, instead of holding on to their idolatrous culture, their idolatrous family history, their idolatrous past lives, they simply burn it all to the glory of God and say, I've been bought with a price. I am a child of the king. What have I to do with idols? What have I to do with sorcery? What have I to do with immorality? What have I to do with things that dishonor the Lord? I wonder if you've ever found that. Maybe the Lord has been at work at you in your life. The Lord has been sanctifying you. And you try to go back and enjoy a, a program on the television or a book that you used to enjoy at an earlier point in your life. And as you begin to partake of that, your conscience bothers you. How could I have consumed this as entertainment before? This is dishonoring to the Lord, and so it must go. That is a wonderful thing, a wholesome thing, a thing most pleasing unto the Lord, where instead of going on and living in sin, there is this change which results in practical consequences, practical outworkings in our lives, such that we actually say, that thing must go from my house. That thing must no longer have place in my life or my time. That relationship must be severed. I must put off the old man and put on the new. I must fervently and zealously and single-mindedly serve the Lord my God. And... In addition to this confession and this repentance, what you have in verse 20, so mightily the word of God grew the word of God and prevailed. And I think there's two things intended there. One is that the truth of the word of God is obviously prevailing against the Lord's enemies and these false religions, but also the esteem for the Bible, the esteem for the scriptures, it is growing. People are beginning to say it's this Christ, this God, this gospel, this word, this book that we need. I love what what one man said that before he was converted, he had many books, but now he is a one book man. Of course, there's lots of 
books that can be profitable, lots of books that can be beneficial to us. But in a fundamental sense, every Christian should be a one-book man or a one-book woman. It's the Word of God that is our life. It's the Word of God that is our spiritual food and drink. For it's the Word of God that reveals Christ unto us. It is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path because it reveals unto us the will of our Savior and Lord for our lives. We want to know Christ. We want to please Christ. We want to glorify Christ. And so we want to obey Christ. And that through the word of Christ. That is inseparable from revival. If you have a revival and people do not make much of the word of God, if they care not for the great truths of the scriptures, if they do not speak that language of the heavenly Canaan, because the words of God are constantly on their lips. We have every reason to doubt if it was a genuine work of God. Until the word of God is made much of, then we cannot say it is true revival. Therefore, congregation, we have these marks. These are the things we should be looking for, whether on the news or in our own communities and families. These are the things we should be praying for. These are the things the Lord is pleased to do through the zeal of the Lord of hosts. He will perform this. I want to speak in the second place something about conflict resulting from revival. We won't read the whole passage, but let me just give you something of a, of a taste. You have following this great revival, a great many people coming to faith in the Lord Jesus, a new church being established there, which ultimately will receive the great epistle to the Ephesians, which we all treasure. Paul, he begins to make preparations to leave and sends some missionaries out to uh, Macedonia, Macedonia and Achaia. They're in northern and southern Greece, ultimately having designs to go to Jerusalem. And then we pick up in verse 23. In the same time, there arose no small stir about that way. That is, there was a controversy about the Lord Jesus and the gospel, the way. Verse 24, for a certain man named Demetrius, a silversmith, which made silver shrines for Diana, brought no small gain unto the craftsmen, whom he called together with the workmen of, the, of like occupation, and said, Sirs, we know that by this craft we have our wealth. Moreover, you see and hear that not alone in Ephesus, but almost throughout all Asia, this Paul hath persuaded and turned away much people, saying, There be no gods which are made with hands, so that not only this, our craft, is in danger to be set at naught, but also that the temple of the great goddess Diana shall be despised, and her magnificence should be destroyed, whom all Asia and the world worship. And when they heard these sayings, they were full of wrath and cried out, saying, Great is Diana of the Ephesians. So not a most flattering picture of the false religion there in Ephesus. Basically, the revival that had broken out had such a great impact on so many people, so many people repenting of idolatry that this craftsman who was in the business of making idolatrous shrines unto the false goddess Diana 
begins to make this argument against Paul, not so much in the first place because he is a sincere pagan worshiping this false god, but in the first place, this is going to be bad for business. You see, all of us, we have our money to make, you see. And and the important thing is that we'll be able to sell our product to these people who do believe in the false goddess of Diana. And this Paul, well, he's teaching that there is no God but one, that the idols made with hands are not worthy worthy for worship and so forth. He's even teaching all of Asia to believe this. And wouldn't you know it? that this is leading to a problem for our bottom line. And of course, even though he's not so serious about his his religion, he does uh, appeal to the honor of those who take that a bit more seriously, appealing that our great goddess Diana should be despised and her magnificence destroyed, whom all Asia and the world worshipeth. You see, this Diana was reckoned to be one of the daughters of Zeus, if you have studied um, Greek mythology in your schooling. And this Diana, well, she was regarded as especially a goddess of fertility. So she would help those who would want help birthing children. And she was also a goddess who helped with war and victories in that connection. And there in Ephesus was regarded as one of the great wonders of the world, a great towering temple to the goddess Diana. And so she was called Diana of the Ephesians because it was the Ephesians who especially gave her this worship. And there you see this great mob howling with rage and shouting, Great is Diana of the Ephesians, becoming more militant and hostile at the threat posed to them by the gospel. And you see how this plays out, that a group of Paul's companions are actually surrounded, and it seems as though they may even be fed to wild animals or otherwise hurt by this mob, and it's left to a, a civil servant, a man from the city council, uh, tasked to sort of calm the crowd down enough so that the Christians can make their escape. But what I don't want you to miss here is that this is the kind of opposition that results when the Lord is genuinely at work. Some people may imagine, well, we are Christians. We desire that the increase of his kingdom, the Lord Jesus' kingdom, be without end. We desire that the zeal of the Lord of hosts would perform great miracles and revivals in our own day. And so we just imagine we will wake up one day and all of the terrible problems of these perverted drag queen story hours will be stopped. And the false religions of critical race theory or worship of the planet, that various forms of anti-Christian heresies and perversions, that these will just vanish overnight. Uh, The increasing hostility which we experience will go down without so much as a whimper. And of course, the Lord could do that. The Lord could instantly turn all of our enemies unto the way of the gospel, but it's not normally his pattern of working. If we should expect and pray for revival in our own day, let us not think that the devil 
will let his prey go without a fight. If there should be great things done in our own country and in our community, let us not imagine that there will not be uh, this, this death rattle from the devil as he feels himself losing his grip upon his prey, as he seeks to stir up opposition and strife and hatred against Christ, his church and people. This is the reality congregation. We, uh, we yearn for not an easy life, not a painless life, not a life free of controversy, but a life that glorifies Christ. That is why we want Christ to work, not that we can lead a comfortable, happy life in the first place. No, so that he will be magnified through and in us and in our nation, in our community, in our families. That's the yearning of our heart. And so it is when there are setbacks, when there is opposition, when we hear the snarls of the devil and of his servants, when we feel the coldness of our current spiritual climate intensifying, we ought to take heart and courage that these things have happened before. These things will happen again. In this life, there must be persecutions until the Lord returns and makes all things new. These things, rather, when we see them traced out through early church history and throughout church history past, ought to remind us that sometimes the Lord is pleased to grow his church through the blood of his saints, through the sacrifice and death of his people who count their lives not precious, but gladly lay them down for the honor of their King. Let us not think that it is a noble thing to run away from persecution, that it is a noble thing to flee from the pain and suffering of hostility. There may indeed be a place for it, but always unto a greater end and unto a greater usefulness. In itself, it is an honor to suffer for Christ and to be persecuted for his name. Blessed are the persecuted, Jesus says, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So we take that to heart. Also, not expecting that the coming of revival and the answers to prayer for the same will not lead to conflict for the faithful people of God. Third and last thing I'd like to do would be sort of reversing the order in which we have been going. Going back in this history to look at a number of things that happened in the life of Paul and of the other Christians there in Ephesus prior to this revival. You know, I think we sometimes look at these revivals as coming out of nowhere. And indeed, it's a mighty work of God. It's not accomplished through human might or human power. And so in some sense, it is a, a radical invasion and, and sudden thing. And yet, you also see that uh, in the lead up to it, there were a number of works of reformation that took place, which I want to end with because I think that some of the, um, the discussion about revival today would profit from seeing its relation to reformation. So we won't take a long time with this. 
But briefly, you understand that reformation is bringing an area of life into conformity with the word of God. We call ourselves reformed. Why? Because we have sought by the grace of God to bring our worship and our doctrine into conformity with the whole counsel of God. That is what it means to be reformed. And anything that is out of conformity to the word of God, well, it must be reformed. And so reformation is, is a constant necessity. And what is the relationship of this reformation to revival? Well, let me show you a number of things. First, we ought to recognize that sometimes reformation can follow a reviving work of the Spirit. If we go back to chapter 18, I want to briefly look at this man Apollos and what the Lord did in his life. Verse 24 of chapter 18. And a certain man named Apollos, born at Alexandria, an eloquent man and mighty in the scriptures, came to Ephesus. This man was instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in the spirit, he spake and taught diligently the things of the Lord, knowing only the baptism of John. And he began to speak boldly in the synagogue, whom, whom when Aquila and Priscilla had heard, they took him unto them and expounded unto him the way of the Lord more perfectly. And when he had disposed to pass unto Achaia, the brethren wrote, exhorting the disciples to receive them, who, when he was come, helped them which had believed through grace. And he mightily convinced the Jews in that publicly, showing by the scriptures that Jesus was Christ. Now you have this man, Apollos, and you see that he's fervent and zealous for the cause of Christ. And he's, um, as he's described there in 25, fervent in the spirit. He's a believer and he has the Holy Spirit. He has a great measure of this anointing. And he's a Jewish man. And he's from the city of Alexandria, the second greatest city in all the Roman Empire, with a great Jewish community. And yet a community influenced by a very bad interpretations of the Bible. Maybe you've heard of Philo of Alexandria, the Jewish interpreter who had very um, uh, fanciful and speculative understandings of the word of God. You might know something of what this man Apollos might have been influenced by. So there you have it. He's, he's zealous for the cause of the Lord. He's, he's seeking to defend the gospel against the Jews. But these two mature Christians, um, husband and a wife who worked with Paul previously, Aquila and Priscilla, they hear him speak. And rather than rebuking him publicly, what do they do? They take him aside and they offer him some instruction privately, trying to explain the word of God unto him more perfectly. He receives this instruction and is able to be a mighty teacher of the Lord. A good example of reformation. There we ought to recognize this, that you can have the Spirit of God get a hold of a group of people, even at a university or a group of students who don't have very good doctrine, who don't have worship that maybe conforms to the Word of God, and yet the Holy Spirit can revive people without having a clear understanding of doctrine. Now, it's not an excuse for having bad doctrine. It's not an excuse for having bad worship, and the 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 earnest 
Um, the desire of every Christian ought to be that following such a work of the Spirit of God, whether in an individual or in a group of people, they be brought into conformity with sound doctrine. And so I think that there can be a, a wonderful role for Christians, especially in the Reformed churches, who do have a sound understanding of the gospel, a sound understanding of doctrine. Our role is not to use that uh, knowledge as a bludgeon in order to attack people. No, we should yearn to come alongside other believers, for the Lord does have his people outside the Reformed churches, and indeed encourage and bless them and love them as brothers and sisters in the Lord, if indeed they be, and seek to reform, seek to instruct, seek to encourage, to seek that more excellent way from the word of God. If the Lord has given us any light, surely it is not to be kept to ourselves, but to be shared with others. And this ought to be our desire, not to just stay within our own federation and not talk to others, no, but rather that we would spread a sound understanding of the gospel and reform doctrine throughout the nation so that those Christians who are deficient in their understanding can glorify the Lord through a way that is in conformity to his truth. The first thought that indeed you can have reformation uh, following a revival. I want to also speak to you about this other uh, example of reformation you have with these other disciples that you find at the beginning of chapter 19. And it came to pass that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul, having passed through the upper coast, came to Ephesus and finding certain disciples, he said unto them, Have you received the Holy Ghost since ye believed? And they said unto him, We have not so much as heard whether there be any Holy Ghost. And he said unto them, Unto what then were ye baptized? And they said, Unto John's baptism. Then said Paul, John verily baptized with the baptism of repentance, saying unto the people that they should believe on him which should come after him, that is, on Christ Jesus. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands upon them, the Holy Ghost came on them, and they spake with tongues and prophesied. And all the men were about 12. So there you have something of a revival after a reformation. So you have Paul, he, he returns here to Ephesus on his third missionary journey, comes across these disciples. And here there seems to be really major problems with their doctrine. Uh, Paulus may have had his own problems, but this group doesn't even seem to understand that there is a person of the Holy Ghost, which would perhaps imply that they may have been unconverted. But they did receive the baptism of John. And while I know that there's a different way of understanding these verses, what I would contend, and you have the majority of the Reformed tradition with me on this, uh, what you have as it follows is that Paul begins to explain to them in both verses 4 and 5 how it went with the um, with John the Baptist and his ministry. Then he preached repentance and a baptism of repentance and that his message was explicitly about Christ Jesus 
Obviously, Paul is concerned. They may not even know who Jesus is because their doctrine is just so deficient. They may not even be saved. And he goes on to explain that these people who heard the preaching of John and were baptized, Paul explains in verse 5, when they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. So I take this to mean that um, Paul here is giving a history of John's baptism, including in verse 5, in order to explain that that baptism is the very same baptism to which Christians are baptized into, the baptism into the name of the Lord Jesus. And so having reformed their doctrine and having explained this, he lays his hands upon them and the Holy Ghost came on them and they spake with tongues and prophesied. And... Obviously, you have the speaking of other languages as they hadn't learned, the tongues and special prophecies, not things we expect ordinarily in the work of the Holy Spirit today. And yet, certainly the work of the Holy Spirit is here and it follows a work of reformation. And I think there we ought to see that indeed we ought to also expect that when we are zealous for the cause of the Lord to reform his church, the Lord can and will bless that through the sending of his spirit. In this case, through the salvation of people who obviously had a very deficient gospel. And is there not a great number of people today here in Canada who have only the shell of Christianity, only a vestige of the external ceremonies of Christianity? They may be baptized. They are not Christians by any stretch. These are the people that we also ought to reach and plead that the Lord would revive. Last and final uh, thought about Reformation and its relation, that it is, um, it is a work that can be gradual, and yet it can lead to great blessing. I want to read in, in the verses following there in verse 7. Um, sorry, verse 8. And he went into the synagogue and spake boldly for the space of three months, disputing and persuading the things concerning the children of God. And when diverse were heard and believed not, but spake evil of that way before the multitude, he departed from them and separated the disciples, disputing daily in the school of one Tyrannus. And this continually for the space of two years, so that all they which dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. And God worked special miracles by the hand of Paul, so that from his hand were brought unto the sick handkerchiefs and aprons, and the diseases departed from them, and the evil spirits went out of them. just want you to notice this. It's a bit of a contentious time for there and Paul over these last two years. He's contending with the false people, false teachers there in the synagogue. He's having to actually separate a group of disciples from that synagogue to, um, because they were despising the gospel and the ordinances of Christ. And so what you have there is a contentious and a laborious work over two years. He's having to rent a lecture hall from a man named Tyrannus as he's supporting himself during the day as a tent maker, and he's lecturing there in the night. And through that, he's able to spread the gospel throughout all Asia. Over the space of two years, you see him teaching and laboring 
and he has only the small group of disciples to show for it, despite the fact that the Lord is blessing him with some amazing miracles, even using his very handkerchiefs to cast out devils and to heal. Throughout those two years, he labors and he preaches and he teaches and he, and he instructs in the ways of Christ. And revival does not break out. No, it happens after this process through a chance botched circumcision of all these um, Jews, which we've already covered. What I want you to point out there is that sometimes we yearn for the flashy, sometimes we yearn for a dramatic work of God, and we despise our duty. We despise the patient, progressive work of evangelism, of working and teaching and of praying, and think that all that is in vain. No, indeed. Paul indeed will say at one point, Paul planted an Apollos water, but God gives the increase. Even as we labor, and even as we pray, and even as we seek to diligently serve the Lord in times of spiritual famine, we ought not to think that is wasted. The Lord can use it, as he did in the life of Paul, to sow seeds that would lead to a bountiful harvest in the years to come. Well, there we have it, congregation. Our series on Isaiah 9, verses 6 to 7, ends with this reflection on revival, how the zeal of the Lord of hosts is pleased to bring about his work for his kingdom. May we bring all glory unto the Prince of Peace upon this series, and may it be stored up into our own hearts.